Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champaign Showers Podcast Network. Today's guest is Champaign County Sheriff Dustin Herman. You have done an amazing job as sheriff. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. It has been four really hard years in general, in law enforcement, in the county. Why would you want to do this job for four more years? You know, there's sometimes that I ask myself the same question. Just like any other job, it has good days and it has its bad days. But even through COVID, my administration and I have set the stage with a lot of goals that I want to see through. I want to see them accomplished. You know, some of those include the consolidated jail facility, the relocation of the sheriff's office to County Plaza. Some of those things that we've worked really hard and taken that 15 years of conversation and finally got them done. I'm not ready to let them go yet because a lot of blood, sweat and tears that went into conversations with the county board and getting buy-in and things for how we're going to progress. And it would be a that if I wasn't around to see it in the role that I currently am. Let's get into some of those accomplishments in more detail. Closing the downtown jail, consolidating the two jail facilities. Why was this so important? As what has happened since the closing? You know, we had the downtown jail closed in May and we started relocating inmates out of county and which, you know, is unfortunate. You know, it's kind of a pain in the butt for everybody, including me and my staff, because we're still responsible for transporting those inmates back and forth to court and everything that goes with it. But, you know, the conversation on closing the downtown jail has been around, like I mentioned, for over a decade. Sheriff Walsh, when he was in office, tried to get it done. And then that was one of my priorities for my first term. And I realized at the time, now, I don't know how in a month from now that's going to translate to the polls. But it was such an important decision that I was willing to let that go just for the fact that we've closed the downtown jail. And why that's so important is for a couple of different reasons. First, the downtown jail was built with a different type of correctional philosophy in mind. And so it is night and day compared to the satellite facility that has glass all around it where you can see every inmate, every inmate's movement. The downtown jail was not like that, which in and of itself made it unsafe. For my correctional officers, it's really an environment that because it was our only location that we had isolation cells. And so if somebody was acting up, We would put them in an isolation cell and then they would continue to deteriorate. Then they would be more likely to get into altercations with my correctional officers. All of our serious altercations between inmates and inmates and correctional officers happened at the downtown jail. And there are just so many reasons for that. I think the straw that broke the camel's back was our personnel issues. COVID has been really tough for the jail, especially for my jail personnel who have been dealing with inmates who have increased mental health issues because the state's not accepting them in a timely fashion. They had a lot of inmates that Department of Corrections weren't accepting because Department of Corrections decided they just didn't want to accept inmates because of COVID, yet we had to still accept them. And so all of that started weighing on my correctional officers. And so closing the downtown jail made it safer. But that lack of personnel and that ability to move those nine correctional officers to the satellite jail to help out with the increase in violence that we were seeing there really was the best solution. My goal would have been to wait until the consolidation was done in 2024. But there were just so many things that told me we've got to do it now. And, you know, I've got a leadership team with my jail superintendent and my chief deputy. We talked and talked and talked about the advantages and disadvantages. And there was just no way that we could keep that place open any longer. 
You talk about personnel and employee recruitment and retention has been really difficult across the country. You work closely with the county board and you looked at salary and benefits. What else have you done to incentivize or entice new employees? The majority of my employment issues are in corrections. Very, very stressful environment. We have lost the most employees out of the correctional division. We've gained some too, but we're still down about 18 officers. So some of the things that we've done, in addition to the COVID premium pay that the county board gave all uh, county employees, except for us elected officials and things, some of the things that we've done to enhance the recruitment aspect is we have offered sign-on bonuses. So I'm currently offering a $5,000 sign-on bonus for new correctional officers who come and work for us. We have worked with the unions, both law enforcement and corrections. If somebody has experience in the field up until three or five years, then they can come and work for us and make that salary that they would at the three or five year level. For corrections, it's five years. For law enforcement, it's three years. It's just how the unions worked it out. But that's a little bit of an incentive, too, because traditionally county pays less than the other local agencies. We have a less tax base and we just don't have as much to pull from. And so when everybody's hiring, it's very difficult to retain employees who can go do what they love doing for a higher pay. And so that's some of the things we've been struggling with. You know, I worked with the Merit Commission, which is basically, I don't want to say a governing board, but it's a commission that is over our hiring and basically any personnel issues that our union contracts wouldn't handle. And so I worked with our merit commission to get approved consideration of deputy applicants or those who take the deputy test for corrections positions too. So traditionally, there's a test for corrections and there's a test for law enforcement and they don't intertwine. So if you take the test for law enforcement, they don't consider you for corrections and vice versa. You know, we've had Fewer people apply for all positions, and we've never really had a robust list of correctional applicants in the first place. It's lower now than what we've seen in the past. It's never been that hundred of applicants like we used to see in law enforcement. And so the thing we were seeing is, is maybe somebody is not right for law enforcement at the time they're applying for that, but maybe they would be ideal for a situation, a more structured environment like a correctional environment. And so getting the Merit Commission to approve looking at those applicants on the deputy sheriff list that maybe we're not going to use as deputies or progress in that process, and then evaluate them for a correctional officer position without them having to take an entirely different test. That has really helped us to look for employees that maybe would have otherwise slipped through the cracks because corrections was not their goal. But we liked them when we interviewed them. And then we can say there are opportunities to move over to the law enforcement field eventually. That's the advantage of having multiple divisions is there are opportunities to laterally transfer within the division at certain times. Of course, that's a little more difficult now. I can't take correctional officers and and move them to law enforcement, even if I wanted to, because that's not fair to my correctional officers. So all of those things, you know, we have testing fee. It costs applicants $40 to test for the sheriff's office to take that written test. We've waived that. And just anything we can do to try to incentivize those who are looking for a job in corrections and law enforcement and even in court security, we've really tried doing that over the last couple of years to boost our numbers for applicants. 
You appointed a female chief deputy to help add a well-rounded perspective to sheriff office operations. I know it's not unusual to find women in law enforcement, but how unusual is it to find females in leadership positions? Well, it's sure not as common as it is to find males in leadership positions. You know, because we're a university town, we have had several females in positions. Deputy chief of Urbana, interim chief of Urbana. We have a female chief of police at the University of Illinois Police Department now. We have had former interim chiefs of police at the University of Illinois that are female. What I think is, and in my own personal opinion from going to sheriff's conferences two or three times a year and dealing with other sheriffs throughout the entire state, is it is very uncommon to find a female sheriff. I don't believe we have any female sheriffs in the state of Illinois or find a female chief deputy, at least in my experience, find somebody in a sheriff's office that has any diversity whatsoever at all, including being a female. So that is a perspective. I brought Shannon on board because obviously I've just got one perspective. I believe the county is still primarily female. I mean, barely female, but I mean, the percentage of residents in Champaign County, at least at one point, was more female than it was male. And so when we're serving the entire county, we need that perspective to help make leadership decisions for the sheriff's office and law enforcement in general. Let's pivot to gun violence for a second. Gun violence continues to be one of the top issues of concern in this community. You work with Community Coalition. Can you tell me a little bit about your work with them and what else is being done to begin addressing this issue right now? With that gun violence, I've always had a a dual approach to gun violence. We have to have that enforcement aspect of it. My opinion is when somebody decides to start shooting at somebody else, We have to take that person out of that situation. We have to take them off the street. Residents of Champaign County, whether you vote for me or not, they deserve to be safe on the streets. They deserve to be safe in their houses. But we also have to invest in kids particularly and invest in the community. And so people don't make the decision to pick up that firearm in the first place. That is the ultimate goal, that eventually we wouldn't need enforcement. Now, I know it's kind of a pipe dream, but... Eventually, I'd like to work towards where people wouldn't ever pick up a gun in the first place, and so we wouldn't have to arrest people for shooting out in the community. That is not going to be something that likely I see in my lifetime, probably not in your lifetime either. But the reason I like the coalition, and you know, I'm part of Champaign Rotary as well, and we invest in a lot of programs in the community and stuff too, is that we really take a focus on what is missing from the lives of youth, especially with coalition, especially the lives of youth who may be more inclined to be involved in street violence, gun crime, those types of things. And how can we supplement that? How can we get them the resources they need so they never have to think about picking up that gun, so they never have to worry about stealing, so they never have to worry about being involved in criminal activity. And, you know, it's a challenge. It really is. If it was easy, we'd have it solved already. But groups like the Community Coalition bring law enforcement, community groups together, the community together, and we really work towards those solutions that are holistic and community-oriented because what my perspective as a law enforcement officer for the last 23 years obviously weighs on enforcement. The mental health aspect, mental health workers that are there every month with us, their focus is on mental health. The housing authority, their focus is on getting rid of poverty and getting a good foundation for housing and things. And the school districts, you know, a good education, a good quality, high quality education. The community coalition puts all of us into a room together. And then we all work towards those goals to help solve these problems that we're seeing in the community. 
A lot of people like to say that it's not the guns, it's a mental health issue. So let's fund mental health intervention. What has your department done in training deputies to de-escalate a situation when it's obviously a mental health call? That's a tough one. And the reason why is because we don't always know if it's a mental health call. You know, a lot of times we may get to a scene, somebody who is a shoplifter or something like that. My deputies get on scene and then they realize quickly that there are some mental health issues going on there. Now, of course, there are also some calls that we obviously know are going to be mental health calls, right? I mean, if you get a call of somebody running naked down the street, chances are that there's something going on there that is higher than just a person deciding to make a conscious decision to run down the street naked. There are differences, but some of the things that we've done is we've always looked at de-escalation. You know, over the last couple of years, that term de-escalation has been highlighted over and over again, which for good reason, there's been a lot of incidents that have gained a lot of attention. But we as law enforcement, especially deputy-wise, I tell people that my deputies are some of the best communicators of law enforcement. And the reason why is because If we go to a call or we're in a fight, we may have to wait 15 or 20 minutes for our backup to get there, as opposed to a municipal police department who may have multiple officers there in a matter of seconds or minutes. And so we as deputies, we as the sheriff's office are really good at talking ourselves out of situations. And so at the sheriff's office, we've been doing de-escalation for a really long time. And I think a lot of police departments have, even though the term hasn't necessarily been as much in the forefront as it is recently. You know, that is one thing we've been doing, and we always hype that. That is one of those skills that if you don't use it, you lose it. Mental health presents in a variety of different ways. And so recognizing that over the last couple of years, we've had a social worker in the sheriff's office. We don't have a co-responder model like the University of Illinois does, but we have more of a follow-up model to where our goal is if my deputies are out with somebody who maybe needs resources and they maybe don't really need law enforcement, then that social worker can work with them to get the resources they need so they won't have to call law enforcement again. That's our ultimate goal. We've been without a social worker for a few months now. It changed from RPC to Rosecrans, and they have a little bit different criteria, and Rosecrans has not been able to find somebody to take on that role with the sheriff's office. We are hopeful that we're going to get somebody to fill that role. Now, one thing I will say is, Champaign County is lucky because the SUSA Act, which is dealing with mental health response, and we're working towards a community where law enforcement doesn't respond in the first place to those mental health issues. The problem right now is, is none of us want law enforcement to respond to mental health issues, but there's no alternative. And so law enforcement by default goes. The SESA Act mandates us, for a lack of better term, to find a better way of doing things. A call center for people to call instead of 911, they're going to call for mental health help. We will eventually get to a point where hopefully here countywide, we're going to have one team that will respond to mental health calls and law enforcement may not even know about it, may not need to be involved in that because we have the right players in place to be able to adequately respond to those calls in the first place. And so what I was getting at is Champaign County is in a really good spot because Chief Carey with the University of Illinois is on the statewide SESA committee. And then I just found out this last week that I'm going to be on our regional committee, our regional advisory board to help 
mold this big monster that the legislature came up with and try to find a way to use it out in the field, to try to find a practical way to make this happen so law enforcement is no longer responding to mental health incidents. And those who are suffering from a mental health crisis are getting the resources they need when they need it. That's the ultimate goal, is we're getting the resources to people when they need it, mostly in the times of crisis. If you were going to talk about fantasy funding, would you love to see a social worker go out on every potential mental health call with an officer? Absolutely. You know, the problem is, is we would probably need multiple social workers for the sheriff's office. And the University of Illinois has multiple social workers, but they also have a lot of money. And they also have a more consolidated area to which they respond. The problem with the county is we've got about a thousand square miles. And if that social worker is riding with a deputy, which is the model that is starting to gain some traction, at least in our area, is we have behavioral health detectives that are paired up with a social worker and they will go to these mental illness calls. Well, it's a lot easier in Urbana or Champaign to do that because it's less area geographically. However, if we would do that, you never know when that call is going to go in and you may have to go from the northeast part of the county to the southwest part of the county. It could take you 45 minutes to get there running lights and siren. And that's just not good for anybody, right? By the time that they get there, that mental health crisis is over one way or the other. Having unlimited funds, being able to have multiple social workers, at least one social worker on each shift, kind of strategically located, but preferably two or three on a shift during the weekend hours would be very beneficial to try to get this going. That's why we're really collaborating with the University of Illinois in particular to try to have some kind of model to where we can use each other's resources whenever we need that. You know, Paige Bennett is the behavioral health detective with Urbana, and she has offered her services to us when we need it. Christina Reefstack is the behavioral health detective equivalent in the city of Rantoul. You know, her husband is a deputy for us. She has told us that if we need resources that maybe she could provide in that case to get a hold of her. And so we're definitely trying to get some of those resources and collaborate with the best way to move forward with addressing mental illness appropriately. A couple of hot button issues, body and vehicle cameras, license plate readers, but you have increased these for transparency and quality control. Can you talk about how these upgraded measures help the community? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with body cameras and in-car cameras. Whenever we get a complaint against an officer, it's always he said, she said. If we don't have body cameras and in-car cameras, our goal is to get a holistic picture of what occurred on a scene. And that helps us in criminal investigations as well. As we have seen the increase in regular citizens using their cell phones to video record the police, we also as law enforcement need to combat with evidence of a holistic nature. Because the one thing we've seen is that you're going to see little teeny tiny clips of what somebody wants you to see. You're not necessarily going to see the entire picture. I would say that we have exonerated more deputies against complaints with our body cameras and with our in-car cameras because somebody will make an accusation against a deputy and we'll say, okay, we're going to consider all the evidence you're giving us. We're going to look at that body camera. We're going to look at that in-car camera. And sometimes people are like, oh, you've got in-car cameras? Because I want to make sure my deputies are acting ethically. Plus, we're gathering evidence out in the community to prosecute people for crimes. Those things have been an asset to us. We had body cameras when I became sheriff. We had a couple of 
in-car cameras, mostly for deputies who were really big into DUIs and things like that. Now, every single patrol vehicle that's out there has an in-car camera and it links to our body cameras. So that means that if other deputies are on scene or a deputy activates his body camera, but forgets to activate his in-car camera or vice versa, it will all activate automatically. And so it kind of takes the human error out of it to a certain point. Because if you're running lights and sirens to a very important emergency, then you're probably not going to remember to tap your body camera and tap your in-car camera and do all of these different things. So basically in those stressful situations, we try to capture as much as possible and let the deputy focus on driving and how they're going to respond to the call and all those things. But we still want that evidence. I was not very in tune with what license plate readers do. I mean, I, I just didn't know much about it. And quite honestly, it's a relatively new technology, at least for us around here. Rantoul was the first department to get license plate readers, and they had a shooting incident to where they were able to identify the suspect's vehicle. Then deputies were able to get involved. It came down to Urbana, the vehicle wrecked, and, and this was not a pursuit, but we were able to tell where these vehicles were going. And then deputies got them in custody. And it was so seamless that then it started making us at the sheriff's office think about this resource. And of course, I think the number one concern with technology like this is invasion of privacy, right? Is somebody going to abuse this technology? Well, I think that the opportunity is there for any unethical officer to abuse any of the technology we give them. That's why we make sure to the best of our ability, we employ ethical officers. And if we have a situation where an officer has acted unethically, we get them the heck out of the office. We don't let police officers who are unethical continue in that role. So we have a lot of checks and balances in place. For an example, if you're going to run a license plate on a license plate reader to see where that vehicle's been, you have to put in a reason for why you're doing that. You have to put in a case number. It has to be associated. We have a lot of checks and balances when it comes to how we can use that information. Now, keep in mind, we've had access to people's license plates for a long time. We have this system called the lead system that we need no reasonable suspicion whatsoever at all to put somebody's license plate in our system and get the return for that on who it belongs to. You know, there are officers who may abuse that as well in the past, but with that checks and balances, with making sure that deputies aren't abusing that, that's how we get through that. Because in my opinion, the advantages are outweighing the disadvantages of a technology like that. It has helped us solve a lot of cases in the sheriff's office and a lot of cases countywide, to tell you the truth, because a lot of times what the issue is, is that first little piece of evidence. So somebody may call you and say, there was a car who drove by and they just shot a gun out of their window. And that's all the information they can give us. But if we have a license plate reader in that area, maybe they could say it was a green SUV. And we have a time period when this happened, if we have a license plate reader, an ALPR in that area, we can then search that for a vehicle matching that description around that time. And maybe we got a license plate on that. And again, that's not a slam dunk yet, but that gives my investigators at least a starting point to then continue their investigation and see if that vehicle was involved or whether that vehicle wasn't involved. Can we identify the suspects inside that vehicle? Can we talk to them? Did they have anything to do with that scene or didn't they have anything to do with that scene? For us, it is really 
been that missing piece of information that we need to get a lot of investigation started. Your position is basically de-escalating all day from deputies to people in the community. When people talk to you at parades or wherever you go, what are some of the biggest issues that you're getting in all directions? One of the big things is obviously public safety. I live in Champaign. My husband works in Champaign. We both live in Champaign, obviously. We are just as concerned about the high gun violence as anybody else who lives in Champaign-Urbana is. What I try to tell them is we are not only working at that enforcement aspect, which is important, but we're also working at investing in the community, as I mentioned earlier, so people don't pick up a gun in the first place. I mean, there's a reason why I am a member of Champaign Rotary. There's a reason why I am supportive of Fight Crime Investing Kids, which is an organization I've been a member of since being sheriff that provides those resources. I don't have a boss except for the voters. Nobody mandates me to go to community coalition meetings, but I feel like that is a way that our community is helping to address this crime. And so that's what I try to tell people is gun violence really had a spike in 2020. Last year, we really had a spike too. This year, we're down by about 50% in county jurisdiction and overall in the county, about 50% in gun crime. Now, I'm cognizant of the fact that that's coming off of a really high year, but we're still making progress in what we're doing. So that gun violence, that gun crime is one that I hear a lot. And then other things I hear is, you know, I'm the first Democratic sheriff since the 1930s. I'm one of four openly LGBTQ sheriffs in the country. And obviously my husband is Hispanic. And so I've got ties to that as well. So often we see sheriffs who wait until retirement and then they run for sheriff or they don't because they have nothing to lose. I took a chance. I decided that, you know, I wanted to throw my hat in the ring. I left a tenured faculty position and I've enjoyed being sheriff so far. But one of the things I hear is we just can't afford to go back. I would agree with that. I mean, we've made so much progress and think about what we would have done without COVID, right? Without COVID-19 getting in the way of things. And so trying to reassure them that we're headed in the right direction. We're going to keep heading in that right direction. We just need to have elected leaders that believe that we need to go in a certain direction. So those are the two main things that I hear whenever we're talking to people. Two questions before I let you go. When people say, quote, defund the police, what exactly does that mean to you personally? Defund the police is something that has gotten a bad connotation over the last couple of years. And with The general concept of defund the police, I would agree. I don't like that term because it has turned into what I believe is a let's reprioritize what the police do. If we have to take some money from the police to give to mental health because police are no longer responding to mental health issues, that is essentially defunding the police. But it has turned into a defund the police because we don't like them, defund the police because we just don't need the police, which is completely absurd. We need the police. We all need to be safe in our communities. But there is no doubt that law enforcement does a lot of things that they don't need to be doing. To me, the core concept of defund the police and what I think it traditionally is without any kind of politics associated with it is let's get the police back on the track of responding to emergencies that are public safety issues and let's move some of that money to areas that really need it. So that community engagement, that mental health response, those types of things. Yeah, it may take some money from the police, but the police are no longer doing those functions as well. That's the problem with trying to take money away from the police before those things are in place is you can't really take money. You know, they saw this in Minneapolis. They took money from the police 
before they had other things in place and it went completely awry. It did not work out for them at all. And so making sure that we have those things in place so law enforcement doesn't have to go to mental health calls because giving police less money with the same responsibilities is not going to turn out well at all. And so defund the police to me means let's reprioritize. Let's make sure that we're funding areas that we need to be funding and making sure that the law enforcement is back to doing what law enforcement needs. But other people who may be better served by social workers, mental health workers, things like that, they've got to be funded too. And we've all got one pot of money. I mean, we don't have unlimited funds. So making sure our goals, making sure the functions that we need in society are adequately funded, to me, is that concept of defund the police, not necessarily that negative connotation, but let's put our funding and priorities that we want to see our society advance to, I guess, for a lack of better term there. Last question before I let you go. I have to ask, the majority of this country wants us to ban assault weapons. The numbers went down until it lapsed in 1994 under Bill Clinton. My question for you is, how does law enforcement, and I know you can't speak for everybody, feel about an assault weapons ban? That's an interesting question. I'm a gun owner myself. And a lot of times you're either for guns or against guns. We saw this situation, and I don't want to say it's an assault rifle that was involved in this situation, but we have a major crisis with shooting incidents in the community. It's not legal gun owners who are doing these things. It's guns that are being stolen from people who leave them out or who leave them in their cars or people who get them illegally because they pay somebody who can legally own a firearm to buy it for them and then give it to them, which is still illegal, by the way. When we talk about assault rifle bans and things like that, we as law enforcement still need rifles like AR-15 so we can combat others who have that type of technology, that type of assault rifle. We can't just simply say, we're not going to do those things, but other people do have them. You know, my husband and I went over to London over the summer and law enforcement over there, not all of them even have firearms. That is just a different type of situation over there with them. Now they do have armed police over there as well. But you know, when you get to Paris, you have law enforcement officers standing on the side of the street that have assault rifles strapped against their chests. Now I'm for sure not advocating for that whatsoever at all. This is kind of a political answer, I guess, but we have to somehow get guns out of the hands of those who are using them maliciously. We just have to do that. If an assault rifle ban is the way to do that, that's what the legislature's for. I'm glad I don't have to make that decision. I've shot an AR-15 before as a police officer. I like shooting AR-15s. I don't personally own one, though. How else are we going to get these weapons out of people's hands? So like I said, I mean, I'm a gun advocate. I like guns. I have guns. I own guns. But I also am responsible with those firearms as well. And that is probably showing the side of me that is not very in politics at all, because, you know, some people would say, absolutely, get rid of assault rifles. We shouldn't have them whatsoever at all. Other people say, don't take guns away. I think there's a happy medium somewhere in there. Who needs an assault rifle, to tell you the truth? I don't know who needs an assault rifle besides maybe the police to address other situations where assault rifles are involved. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champaign Showers Podcast Network. Dustin Herman, Sheriff of Champaign County, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me.